Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Megan Williams. And I'm Samira Moyadin. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, the sky is falling. Russia sent bombs raining down on Ukraine's biggest cities today as aerial attacks continue to ramp up. A journalist in Kyiv tells us there's little people can do but brace for more. Double, double standards. The country's top CEOs made the average Canadian's salary by 9.27 a.m. today. And the economist who wrote the report says while everyone else is feeling the pinch of inflation, executives are only seeing more dollar signs. He took his work home with him, remembering Dennis Edney, the Canadian lawyer who fought for Omar Khadr's release from Guantanamo Bay and welcomed him into his home. Generous to a fault. Charities are often ordered to keep their costs low so more money can go directly to the people they're trying to help. But a new film argues that mistaking frugality for morality is a serious miscalculation. We'll revisit Neil's conversation with philanthropist Dan Polata and director Stephen Gyllenhaal about their 2023 documentary, Uncharitable. And something to chew on. Researchers hoping to deploy beavers in the fight against climate change say they've devised a new way to spy on them from space. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that knows the tooth is out there. For the second year in a row, people in Ukraine are hearing explosions and air raid alerts. Russia has renewed its bombardment of Ukraine's biggest cities, and both Ukrainian and Russian officials are reporting civilian deaths and widespread injuries. Today's strikes follow Russia's biggest aerial attack of the war late last week and after President Vladimir Putin vowed to intensify attacks. Philip Itner is a freelance journalist based in Kyiv. That's where we reached him. Philip, you woke up to explosions this morning, and the mayor of Kiev says two people died today. What's the day been like for you? Well, the day um, started with an alarm uh, sounding from my phone. Uh, many Ukrainians and those of us who live here have air raid siren apps that will alert us uh, from monitoring stations, you know, depending on your region. So uh, very groggily, I, I, you know, was aware of the air raid siren. Uh, and as is so often the case in Ukraine and in Kiev in particular, uh, you know, you start making the judgment of, well, I'm, in, I'm warm in my bed right now. How bad is this going to be? And then the air raid and then the uh, anti-aircraft weaponry. Mm-hmm. Uh, begins to fire, and it's clear that this is a serious attack. As the war yeah. goes on, how has your reaction to these alerts changed? Well, like so many of us, um, there are you do have to make a decision mm-hmm. uh, every time the alarm goes off. You know, we had a massive attack on the 29th. We have this attack today. The Russians are clearly ramping up in this New Year holiday period their the scale of their attack. So you take that into consideration. But yes, obviously, you can't go running every time the alarm goes off because the alarm is going off so frequently because every time Russia puts any kind of aircraft in the sky... Uh, it's possible they're carrying a hypersonic uh, cruise missile. Now, Ukraine has retaliated with a strike on uh, Belgorod, which has resulted in further retaliatory strikes from Russia. How much do you think this could escalate? I think this could ex- I think this could uh, escalate um, significantly. Russia, we've known for a while that Russia has been stockpiling 
its capacity and the, the weaponry that it uses to attack cities, and that is cruise missiles, um, drones, uh, other traditional missile systems. It could continue. Uh, and because there has been a difficulty in uh, in recent months of coordination between the West and Ukraine, especially when it comes to air defense capacity, mm-hmm. there's some talk that there may be running out of air defense. And if the Russians continue to pressure Ukraine uh, and they use up uh, this, this air defense capacity without any backfill from the West, we're going to be in trouble. President Volodymyr Zelensky gave his New Year's message a couple of days ago uh, where he he talked about there sort of being uh, a waning sense of urgency from the West. What do you take away from that message? I've heard that same uh, concern repeated um, in, in my daily conversations with Ukrainians and within my professional and vocational interactions. Um, they try to be polite. Um, they understand that they are asking for you know assistance. They're asking for for help, and yet at the same time, uh, and uh, oftentimes. Uh, they lose their their uh, composure. I have heard repeatedly, you know, you in the West must decide whether or not you are going to support us or not. And if you're not going to support us, get out of the way and at least tell us, you know, what we can expect from you because this dithering is um, is causing a lot of problems in Ukraine. And uh, if they're not going to get the assistance, they would rather know that full, you know, for, uh, out of the go, uh, as opposed to this kind of wishy-washy, are we going to give them this? Are we going to give them that? And what's what's the morale? Uh, you know, when people are saying that you're you're talking about their sense of frustration with the reduced support. Uh, how are people feeling about the possibility of of winning this war? They're very frustrated. They appreciate the assistance. They want the assistance. In fact, of course, they obviously recognize in many ways. Um, it may be, you know, it, without it, they may very well lose this war, although I would argue it would go to an insurgency before, you know, even if they did lose their conventional war, it would, this, this country is determined never to be under the control of Moscow again. And these repeated attacks, such as we've seen on the 29th and now today, it's doing the exact opposite of what I think the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin intends it to do. You're not going to be able to bomb these people into submission. As a matter of fact, it's counterproductive. I have heard more anger today than I have heard, um, you know, talk of despair or surrender or acquiescence or, you know, let's open peace negotiations because we can't take this. No, no, no. What I have been hearing from my friends and colleagues and, and people that I talk to here in Kiev is straight up anger. What happens is the Ukrainians are furious and and angered and they want uh for lack of a better word revenge um yes they are frustrated at the west yes they are disappointed in many ways at the west but they know who their enemy is and it's not the west uh, it is it is the kremlin and so it, there is in my mind there is very little chance of any kind of reunification or friendly relations between these countries because okay. They're killing Ukrainians. Philip, you've been in Ukraine since the start of the invasion. On a day like today, does it cross your mind to leave? No, uh, never. I have a very dear affection for this country. I've been coming here for 25 years. I was on Maidan, uh, what is called the Independence Square here in Kiev, when the uh, uprising uh, happened, the Maidan uh, Independence Uprising happened, mm-hmm. and um, it was a very emotional event, and uh, frankly, uh, I made promises to people that I would not, as the West has done in the past, abandon Ukraine. Philip Itner, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Philip Itner is a freelance journalist. We reached him in Kiev, Ukraine.
Canada's CEOs just keep on getting richer. As the rest of the country is feeling the pinch of inflation, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives says that Canada's richest are actually benefiting from it. In a new study, the Ottawa-based think tank found that Canada's top 100 CEOs are making 246 times more than the average Canadian, the largest that gap has ever been. David McDonald is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and author of the report, Canada's New Gilded Age. We reached him in Ottawa. David, how long did it take this year for the top CEOs to earn the average yearly salary of a Canadian? Well, it's up till uh, 9.27 a.m. this morning. Uh, when you make $7,200 an hour, which is what the average CEO makes, it doesn't take long for you to make 60000 uh, took just over eight hours, uh, which was, uh, you know, just as people were walking into the office on uh, the second weekday of the year. Do these numbers even surprise you anymore? <laughs> That's the thing is they don't. Uh, this was a record high this year. It was a record high last year uh, in terms of CEO pay, you know, 14 point million on average this year, 14.3 last year. Uh, I think in the last two years, you could really see it coming. Uh, inflation was such an important factor in uh, 2021 and 2022. And uh, CEO pay is primarily bonuses, actually. It's performance-based compensation. Mm-hmm. So 84% of their, their pay is bonuses. 8% is salaries. And so those bonuses are based on things like profits, profit margins, revenues. And so as we saw those go through the roof in the inflation period, 2021-2022, that blows up bonuses which blows up CEO compensation, and that's the sequence of events and one of the reasons why we're seeing this record high pay in uh, in the latest data. Yeah, I mean, for most of us, when we hear the word inflation, we picture earning less because that's what happens with most Canadians or, or you know, our, our earning, our buying power is reduced. Yet with CEOs, it's actually, it works in their favor. Yeah, I mean, for most consumers, inflation is a pretty bad news story where you just can't buy the same amount of goods and services as you could two years ago because uh, pay hasn't been up fast enough. Uh, for CEOs, uh, the story that we've heard from companies is uh, they were just increasing their prices, therefore causing inflation because they were covering higher costs. That's not what the data bears out. The data bears out that, yeah, their costs went up and they increased their prices and then they increase them a little bit more to ensure that profits also went through the roof. And so you get these huge paydays for, for CEOs as the bonuses also go through the roof, uh, you know, fairly directly related to inflation. And how is the average Canadian's salary keeping up with inflation? Well, in 2022, it fell behind inflation. So uh, workers took uh, a little over a 3% pay cut. Uh, 2023, the more recent data has been somewhat better, where uh, hourly pay has been slightly above the rate of inflation as workers try to claw their way back. Uh, you know, for CEOs, uh, their pay increased $600,000 in one year. That's the increase. That's the change in pay. That's not the actual amount. Mm. Uh, and so for them, inflation isn't really as important. So, I mean, they're not spending every dime they get. Uh, you know, a lot of it's going to go away in investments and so on. And so that's right. not quite as important for them. Can you paint us a picture of who these CEOs are and what what companies would stand out to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, look, these are the grocers, the bankers, the oil magnets. They make auto parts. Uh, they run fast food empires. Uh, uh, it isn't particularly limited to a segment of the economy. Um, certainly, to take uh, broad strokes, they're almost all men. Uh, there's actually more marks on the list this year than women. You mean same, men, men the with the name Mark? Yes, that's right. So there's actually the same number of men named Mark on the list as women for a piece. Uh, that's nothing new. Uh, you know, women are women are always terribly represented on this list, even mm. though in the general labor market, uh, you know, women are roughly equal to men in terms of counts, not necessarily in terms of pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are company men. So on average, they're working for their company 18 years before they get the CEO chair. 75% of them are hired internally. Um, the pitch is that it's some sort of a hockey draft where you actually have to compete for them in a big hockey draft. It's not actually how CEOs are hired. They're actually largely largely promoted from within. Uh, they're paid as if it's a hockey draft, but they're hired uh, through internal promotions often. 
Now, an economist from the George Mason University in Virginia told CBC that your study is flawed and like comparing oranges with apples because you don't include things like benefits. What's your response to that? Um, we, when it comes to CEO compensation, we include the total pay package. So that's going to include things like pension contributions and so on. Uh, but critically, it's going to include the bonuses. Um, so for average workers, uh, they don't receive substantial bonuses. Be a very small part of their overall pay package. Compensation, you're right, isn't part of that. But in general, it's not going to change the picture all that much. Um, I mean, what's important to note here isn't so much that CEOs get paid more, which they have always been paid more, but it's the gap and how much that gap is changing over time. Uh, so this year, uh, we're hitting 246 times uh, CEOs, what CEOs make to average workers. When we started looking at this in 2008, it was 150 times. In the 90s, it was 100 times. In the 80s, it was 50 times. 50 times more than the average worker is still a lot more, Mm -hmm. but the gap is growing as we overvalue CEO contributions to our economy and undervalue the contributions of regular workers. What else would you like to see done to address this issue? Uh, Well, certainly, uh, you know, higher top marginal brackets. These are very rich people. They don't need tax breaks, but we give them to them anyway in particular ways that nobody else can use, like for stock options or capital gains. Uh, Companies themselves write off these massive pay packages against their own taxes. It doesn't have to be this way. We could change the rules. Um, And historically, the tax rates have been higher. And so we can look back at our own history uh, to, uh, you know, to see that we could repurpose this money offset this income inequality and put that money to better use. Things like rebuilding our health care system or helping low-income households afford these much higher costs. Those, to me, seem like better uses of these extreme pay packages than leaving it with these wealthy CEOs. David, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thanks so much for having me. David McDonald is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He's in Ottawa. It was a legal battle that spanned well more than a decade. In 2002, Omar Khadr was captured in Afghanistan and sent to Guantanamo Bay, accused of killing an American soldier with a grenade. He was 15 years old. What ensued was a lengthy fight to get Mr. Khadr released from Guantanamo Bay and later from a maximum security prison in Edmonton. And 15 years after his capture, the Canadian government apologized for any role Canadian officials played in what Mr. Cotter endured. Instrumental to that victory was Dennis Edney, Mr. Cotter's longtime lawyer. Mr. Edney died over the weekend. He was 77 years old. Mr. Edney spoke with our program at several points in the case. One of those interviews was in the spring of 2015 when an Edmonton judge ordered Mr. Cotter released on bail. Of course he's a victim. He was 15 years of age. He was, he was dumped into a compound with serious players, Taliban warriors, by his father, abandoned. And let's assume, that, and at worst, Omar Khan should have been treated under various international treaties, such as he should have been treated as a, a child soldier. We in Canada, the Canadian government, spends millions of dollars, along with the Americans, in rehabilitating child soldiers in Sierra Leone. And yet they chose not to treat Omar Khadr, a 15-year-old, as a child soldier. If he's released, and that's the plan so far, he will live with you and your wife. Is that right? That's correct. What do you think that will be like for him? He's been diagnosed with PTSD. He has... He's had multiple injuries, and he has spent a great deal of time in a very strange place called Guantanamo Bay. What do you think life would be like for him and for you and your wife? Well, first of all, Omar Khadr is a healthy young man. Omar Khadr would be a tribute to the, Can- to the Canadian society. I have no doubt about that. Um, I see him all the time. I can tell you that all the correctional services reports on Omar Khadr are glowing of Omar Khadr. And so when he comes to my house, he'll be treated like any other guest. He is someone that we wish to help to 
to um, continue his life, to get what he didn't get, to embrace the outside opportunities. He wants to go to school. He's had all kinds of, of um, letters that we provided from to the court from different levels of, of Alberta society prepared to stand up and assist him. The image of Omar Khadr is a good image if one really saw him. And he, is, he is someone who has no anger. I've never heard him say an angry word against anybody. That's from our archives. That was Omar Cotter's longtime lawyer, Dennis Edney, speaking with former As It Happens host, Carol Off. Mr. Edney died over the weekend. He was 77 years old. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, the humble beaver. Though the animal might bear significance here in Canada, it hasn't always been appreciated south of the border. But now, that's starting to change. As climate change takes its toll, beavers are increasingly praised for their ability to support ecosystems through wildfire and drought. And now a new tool hopes to help harness that power by keeping tabs on the creatures from space. Emily Fairfax is one of the people behind the model. She's also an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. We reached Professor Fairfax in Minneapolis. Emily, I imagine you've spent a fair bit of time observing beavers from the ground. Why observe them from space? You know, when you go out to beaver ponds in the field, it's really incredible landscapes. There's a lot going on, but they are hard to get through. There's mud, there's a lot of vegetation, there's water in weird places. So when you're trying to understand how beavers affect something at like the watershed scale, to go out and physically visit all of those ponds would take weeks, if not months. Whereas when we use satellite and aerial imagery, we can see the impacts that beavers are having at much larger spatial scales and do it a lot faster. Hmm. Now, the bigger picture here, of course, is that beavers can play a really important role in the face of climate change. How so? Yeah, beavers they do a lot of different things with their ecosystem engineering that helps us out with climate change. It feels uh, very fortunate, I would say, with all of the benefits they provide. What I focus the most on in my research is the ways that they create drought and wildfire resilience in the landscape. So by storing a bunch of water, both in the surface and the ponds, but also underground in the soil, they create these big spongy patches in the landscape that plants are able to access water from when you have a period of drought and that are honestly just too wet to burn when you have a period of fire. So you create these very buffered wetland ecosystems. Something else that has been seen, though, um, that I haven't personally studied is they also help with flooding. So when you have a lot of water coming through the landscape after a big storm or after snowmelt, just like the wetlands can absorb a bunch of water and give it to the plants during dry periods, when they're all dried out and that flood water comes in, they fill back up and they can sort of suck up the flood wave so that downstream you have a lesser effect. So as we think about climate change and you have droughts and floods and fires all intensifying, beavers are kind of helping take all three of those things down a notch. Amazing. Now, this particular project began a few years ago when you were contacted by two employees of Google. What did they have to say to you when they called? Yeah, so Dan and Eddie uh, reached out to me and they wanted to know if I thought it was possible to find beaver wetlands from aerial imagery myself, and then if that could be scaled up with machine learning. And I knew you could do it yourself because I'd been doing that kind of mapping for a long time. And the machine learning question really piqued my interest because dam mapping takes a while. It's, it's faster than doing it on ground, but it's not like a super fast process. And if we could teach students or researchers to do it, I felt like we could teach a computer to do it. And if anybody knows how to do that, it's going to be Google. So it felt like this really cool project collaboration right from the get-go. 
Now, the model uses satellite imagery to detect mm-hmm. the beaver ponds. Can can you tell me how exactly it works? Yeah. So when we built the model, we sort of taught it what beaver ponds look like based on thousands and thousands and thousands of little snapshots of satellite images of beaver ponds that I had already mapped out, that some of my colleagues had already mapped out. So the model was sort of seeing the variety of beaver dams in the landscape, and then it goes through new places that it hasn't seen the landscape before and looks for those patterns and looks for those objects and those ways that the colors change around beaver ponds Mm -hmm. and tries to identify them just based on what the landscape looks like and what the slope underlying that landscape is. So what sort of um, formations is it looking for? We trained it pretty specifically to look for the beaver dams themselves. So when the beavers are building their dams, these are going to be anywhere from, you know, 10 meters up to 300, 400 meters long. They can be quite large. And they have this very sort of classic curvy shape across the landscape. Mm-hmm. And then this big, dark, open water body behind them, and that's the beaver pond. And so when I look at images, I can see these super fast. They're obviously different than the forest or the prairie that surrounds them. And then when the machine goes through and it looks at these images, it's looking for those exact same things. Right. And I, I understand there was a certain uh, suburban street design, the, the cul-de-sac <laughs> that tripped up the algorithm at first. They did. You know, the model, it makes mistakes just like people do. And for whatever reason, it got so hyper-focused on cul-de-sacs. It was just convinced that cul-de-sacs <laughs> were beaver dams. What, what was and it about the cul-de-sac that, that, that tripped it up? I think, you know, we speculate, we can't ask the model directly, like, why cul-de-sac? But we think it's because they're curved, they have a light side and a dark side. And we even talked to another group that had dabbled in machine learning for beaver dams, too, and their model also found cul-de-sacs. So it's something about cul-de-sacs that computers are just like, yeah, that's a beaver dam for sure. (laughs) Um, But we traded off of that. We sent it pictures of cul-de-sacs. We were like, not a beaver dam. Stop doing that. Um, And the model's gotten better. It doesn't do that as much anymore. Right, right. Now, the state of California is hoping to better understand where beavers are in the state. Um, What would you like to see officials do with the information that you're collecting? You know, first thing I would like to see them do is just establish a baseline of what is the beaver situation in California. We really don't know how many beavers there are, if they're evenly distributed across the landscape, if they're in places where we really want them to be. So just getting that baseline at least will let us track over time. And then ultimately, I'd like to see our model contribute to a more strategic plan for where to put beavers. So we know where beavers could be from other models, and then our model can tell us where beavers are currently, and that'll help us figure out sort of like, okay, this spot in the landscape, it doesn't have any beavers, it should have beavers, and there are some beavers kind of nearby. This would be a great spot to do like a reintroduction effort, for example. Right. Now, California has had a complicated past with beavers, and it's certainly not the only place that has. What have attitudes towards the animals been like? I mean, there's still people that really are not big fans of beavers, and I I get it. Like, beavers are these huge semi-aquatic rodents, and they go out and they are just, like, agents of chaos on the landscape. And I describe them as chaotic good. Like, the things that beavers are doing, they're, you know, messy, but it's good for the landscape. Um, I think recently, though, public opinion has really started shifting on beavers, because even though they are maybe chewing on our favorite trees or flooding some spots we don't want them to flood, the ways that they help with things like drought and wildfire and natural disasters it's really appealing. We've put so much time and money and effort into fighting, you know, the next big wildfire and seeing mixed successes that I think a lot of people are ready to, you know, get creative and expand the firefighting force to include beavers, not just people. We were going to figure out something to give us hope. And I feel like beavers is a pretty good thing because I think there's real opportunity there. Well, Emily, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and hearing about the beaver project. Yeah, of course. Always happy to talk about beavers. Emily Fairfax is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. We reached her in Minneapolis. If charitable giving is among your New Year's resolutions, chances are you're thinking carefully about how to make sure your money has the greatest possible impact. Or maybe you're not. Maybe instead you're thinking about how to ensure you're donating to a charity with the lowest possible overhead. Same difference, right? Not so, says Dan Pallotta. 
Dan is a writer and philanthropist, and when he first started fundraising, it was in response to the AIDS crisis and the suffering that he'd witnessed firsthand as a gay man who saw too many of his friends die. But as he told audiences in a hugely successful 2013 TED Talk, that venture did not end remotely how he'd hoped. In the 1990s, my company created the long-distance AIDS ride bicycle journeys and the breast cancer three-day walks. And over the course of nine years, we had 182,000 ordinary heroes participate, and they raised a total of $581 million. 2002 was our most successful year ever. We netted for breast cancer alone, that year alone, $71 million after all expenses. And then we went out of business, suddenly and traumatically. An excerpt from Dan Pallotta's viral 2013 TED Talk entitled, The Way We Think About Charity is Dead Wrong. It's a speech that had a simple message, that nonprofits should be allowed to function more like for-profit companies, and that if they did, the world would be a better place. And last year, that message became the premise for a provocative film featuring Dan and directed by his friend Stephen Gyllenhaal. From our archives, here is Neil's October conversation with both of them about the release of Uncharitable. Dan, Stephen, welcome to As It Happens. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dan, nice to be here. Dan, I'll start with, with what we just heard there, what you were referencing in your TED Talk. When Pilata Teamworks goes out of business, we'll talk in a moment about the why of all of that. But I wanted to get a sense from you first how that felt, given the reasons you started this business in the first place. It was devastating. You know, it was like you're a kid building a beautiful house out of blocks and you've put great love and care into it and vulnerability and fragility and it's a piece of art for you and you're proud of it and somebody comes along and kicks it down. And your mother doesn't come up to you to console you. There's no one to console you. You're just there with the devastation of this thing that was your child that you uh, put so much heart into building, and now it's gone. The film t talks about what was a significant contributor to the demise of your company, the scrutiny around the amount of money going to overhead costs in particular. At the time, what did you feel that spending allowed you to accomplish? Well, it allowed us to hire really great people. It allowed us to uh, do uh, marketing in a way that nonprofits don't do it. You know, full page, full color ads in the New York Times on Sunday, page two of the arts and leisure section so that we had huge exposure, you know, national television advertising and paying full rate for that stuff so that we didn't get uh, relegated to a three o'clock in the morning slot where no one was going to see it. Um, and then also the quality of the experience, right? You're going to, if you're going to take 6,000 people on a three day walk from Santa Barbara to Malibu, or you're going to take 1,500 people on a bike ride for six days from Fairbanks to Anchorage, Alaska, or across the continental divide in Montana, you better know what you're doing. And you better have the right logistics in place. Um, and, and those things better be done well and be done on time. So that's where we were investing the dollars. And, you know, it's expensive to recruit through advertising 6,000 people in Chicago to do a breast cancer three-day walk. And it's expensive to take care of their meals and their showers and their housing and their medical needs and massage and audiovisual equipment and gray water and black water hauling. I mean, the complexity of it was amazing. So the fact that we were able to return, you know, on average 56, 57 cents of every dollar back to the causes is, is pretty remarkable. And we should mention Pilata Teamworks was, was a private for-profit company that organized events on behalf of charities. It wasn't a registered charity itself. Right. We were a for-profit company, and we charged a fixed production fee for each event. So we didn't do commission-based fundraising. We didn't get paid a percentage. And um, But because you know the expenses might be 40%, people thought 40% was coming to us. More specifically, they thought 40% was coming to me. Well, I would be a very, very wealthy man right now if that were the case. And battling those... those um, that misinformation was a big, big task. And I got to say, part of it was our fault. 
because we posted how much we raised, what our fee was, how much we charged for that event, what we spent on marketing, what we spent on logistics, what percentage remained after all of that. Maybe foolishly, I felt, no, I, I, we're building a brand here. We want people to trust us. I want to be completely transparent about everything. But that gets tough when people are operating out of the wrong context in terms of judging you, you know? Stephen, let me bring you in here because you met Dan, as I understand it, around the time the AIDS rides first started. But then you also called him up on the day his company failed. What do you remember about that call? Well, I think what I felt then was bewilderment. What I feel now, and in listening to Dan talk about this, is what I've learned over the years since, how what Dan went through is what pretty much every charity goes through. Not as dramatically necessarily, but I think almost as painfully. And I've gone from making a a film for a, a close friend of mine who I've known for years into becoming a passionate believer in if we are going to save this world from what seems to be getting um, an environment that is more and more dangerous, we are going to have to unleash the sector, the charitable sector and all the charities in it in the same way that Dan was able to do until he was so misunderstood. At the time, though, Stephen, did did any of the criticisms, the coverage that Dan was was facing, did that give you pause at the time? No, because I I knew that, you know, for instance, he gave so much money to AIDS, unrestricted funds at a time when there was still a lot of hostility around with the whole gay world, in a way, I would say. They were there in the thick of it, really solving problems. So to me, I felt I could I knew that Dan was a, a very good man and very honest and scrupulously careful about funding something he's been he's been on me about as we've made this movie as well. So, no, I had no doubts that that there was something that was really wrong and it wasn't him. So, Dan, you, you take that that moment of, of deep personal turmoil and loss. It's quite an emotional moment in, in the film. You're quite honest about that. And, and you turn this into a TED talk uh, and it deals with. A lot of the areas you feel nonprofits are forced to operate at a disadvantage. Uh, Marketing, you've talked about taking risks and also compensation. Uh, And and that's one that that, uh, gets a lot of people talking, gets seen as controversial by some, as you know. What do you think the, the chief executive of a charitable organization should be allowed to make? Whatever it takes to find the person who can solve the problem. See, people like to have fun academic arguments about these things and make it about compensation or make it about the measurement. Should we use overhead? Should we use something? And for me, that's not what it's about. It's about solving problems. You know, if you look in Canada or the U.S., if you look at rates of child poverty, static for the last 50 years, suicide rates increasing for the last 50 years, illiteracy rates static for the last 50 years. Okay, so if you want a system, if you want an approach that doesn't really change anything, don't change a damn thing because we got a system that's really good at keeping things the same. It's not about the academics of compensation. It's about, well, if you could find an Elon Musk capable of ending hunger, is there any price that's too high to pay? Some people tell me, well, what should a charity spend on overhead? Or like Mm -hmm. you just asked, what should they spend on their CEO? Well, that depends. And in most of these cases, we're dealing with life or death issues. So the answer mm-hmm. is whatever it takes. But you're also dealing with, as you, as you know, uh, perception and what people, you know, people who can maybe give $10, people who can maybe give 50 or or $100, how they perceive what is happening yes. and where the money is going. And you know that executive salaries in the for-profit sector are certainly a lightning rod and under a lot of scrutiny. The Economic Policy Institute says CEO pay in that sector has skyrocketed by more than 1,200 percent since 1978. So when people are trying to get their heads around what what you're saying, uh, are you advocating that nonprofits follow that same kind of path? What's uh, what's what CEO salary is skyrocketing? Tell me which one is skyrocketing. The econom- I'm quoting the Economic Policy Institute. Generally, since 1978, more than 1,200 percent CEO pay has gone up. To what? 
2022, CEOs were paid 344 times as much as a typical worker, whereas in 1965, they were paid non- 21 times as a typical person. Not at nonprofits. I'm saying, where do you draw the line for nonprofits? Do you think they should follow suit? Well, you raised the question about yeah. perception. And for too long, the nonprofit sector has said, because donors perceive high overhead as the opposite of high impact, we should not have high overhead. But if you know that high overhead actually leads to high impact, then perhaps you should change donor perceptions. And that's what my entire life's work has been about for the last 25 years. That's what this movie is about. Can, can, I, can I step in here for a second? Sure, of course, Stephen, yeah. Because first of all, Dan is my friend, and I can see how he has been this has come at him time and time again, to take the comparison of what CEOs make in the for-profit sector and apply it to what's going on in the nonprofit sector seems to me to be frankly irresponsible. Well, I'm not saying that's how much people Wait, are making. Finish. I'm asking, me, is there is there a line? You know, the line is why the movie is so important. Because what I discovered as I made this movie, and it was a discovery, was that almost every CEO of a nonprofit and all the people underneath them have made decisions in their life to try and do something good in the world. They're really profoundly interested in trying to solve these problems and the problems are not getting solved. And the reason I made the movie was to put together the persuasive arguments that Dan has made in the TED talk and bring an emotional component to it. I worked very hard to turn this not into a documentary that was just talking about facts and figures, but a documentary that spoke to unleashing a sector to do their job. And this is the movie, I think, that begins that conversation. I was more than roll up the sleeves and fight about this because or at least try to discuss it. I guess from my perspective, asking a question isn't isn't an attack. Um, But I did. My next question was actually going to be, Stephen, about how you take these these concepts, these ideas, these provocative arguments, and then turn this into a film? Well, I felt that the emotional stories were very important. The tragedies that unfolded for a lot of really motivated heroes was an important piece of it. But what became more important was to take the audience down to sort of the darkest place that I think we generally feel about the future. I'm from Hollywood, you know, I, I, I've spent my life in Hollywood. And generally, the Hollywood movies, and most of the movies in the world are that the future is apocalyptic. And I wanted to take us down to the darkest place where most of us, I think, feel now that it's hopeless, and take the movie ultimately to the place that I think the charitable sector promises, which is profound hope. And we actually go together, right, left and center. And there's been so much, so much separation in the world and actually solve these problems. And I think Dan's conversation that's gone on for all these years is the key, which is why I've spent so many years making a movie, by the way, under the same old ethos that's existed all along, which is no money, struggling, donations, all those kinds of things. But you know what? I've never been happier because I feel like this movie really speaks to hope, profound hope. And Dan, let me ask you, you know, on one hand, I think uh, people who are considering giving to charities, they want to know they're reputable and they, they want to be able to find out information. On the other hand, sometimes people bristle when they feel that those charities are too slick. What would you say to, to people who are listening who feel that way? Because that's a very difficult line to ride for people who are trying to affect change and do good. We live in this world of consumption, right, where people are inundated and indoctrinated from the youngest age with messages to drink Coca-Cola and buy the new Apple Watch and purchase Air Jordans and go see this movie. It's a hypnosis, right? And because we don't allow the nonprofit sector to spend money on advertising, we don't want that. We want all the money to go to the cause. That means that the nonprofit sector is not out there competing um, with consumption. And so sometimes people say, well, I don't want the charity spending money on fundraising. Well, think about what that means. What is fundraising? Fundraising is an investment in getting other people to give. So when you say, I don't want the charity spending any money on fundraising, you're literally saying you want them to rely on you all the time, increasingly. And fundraising is also 
an investment in building civil society and strengthening civil society and getting people up and off of their sofas away from their devices and invested in the great causes of their time, whether that's participating in an AIDS ride or giving big money to a homeless charity. And, and there is no other element of civil society chartered to get people involved in the great causes of their time. There is no other. It's the nonprofit sector. But if you don't allow the nonprofit sector to go out there and enroll people in that, then you're going to you're not going to have a very strong civil society. And that's essentially what we have. You know, 10 years on from your TED Talk, Dan, I wonder, where do you think? I mean, do you feel better about where things are at 10 years since you you gave that speech? Yeah, a conversation has begun, right? And that's the beginning of possibility. Um, six weeks after the TED Talk, the first result was three of the big evaluating agencies in the United States started to see the writing on the wall because the TED Talk went viral and they issued a joint press release. The Better Business Bureau, Charity Navigator and GuideStar telling the general public overhead is not the thing you should most be asking about. You should be asking about impact. Then um, the Ford Foundation came out. Darren Walker came out and said that this overhead thing is a charade. Frankly, we've known for years that the money we give to our grantees isn't enough to cover the administration of their projects. And then they joined hands with five other big foundations to double their overhead percentages to grantees. So a conversation has begun. Um, but I would say it's where gay marriage was in the 1940s, right? It's just begun. If you go out on the street... There's still very old thinking about this. You ask anyone on the street, what should you ask when giving to a charity? And they'll say, well, I want to know how high the overhead is, and I want to know what they pay the CEO. And they don't know that overhead is not a measure of impact. And, and really, my interest over the last 20 years has been, how do you change the public's mind? And one of the things that has encouraged me enormously is I can go into a room it can be 20 college students. It can be 5,000 people at a big conference. They don't really know what I'm going to say. Maybe their arms are folded. An hour later, there's a long line of people coming up to me saying, I never knew this. I never thought about these things. I'm never going to ask that question again. I'm going to ask this question. Instead, people aren't obstinate about this. They're just too busy to understand the economics of the nonprofit sector. And that's understandable. When you explain it to them in 45 minutes, 75% of people go, great, let's do it a new way. Yeah. So that's the real purpose of the movie is to take the next step in changing minds at scale. And what we've seen in the audiences that have seen the movie is it works. It's persuasive. Like people, People's minds are changed. And it know? shows people who are, who are working in the nonprofit sector who are doing things differently or at least trying to do things differently. I'm wondering, Stephen, how you decided who to interview, who to include in this project. And I'm thinking in particular of the Coney 2012 example and Jason Russell. Some of our listeners may remember that film. It went viral. It raised awareness. But but it was also criticized for oversimplifying the situation on the ground in Uganda. So how did you decide who to interview and include to make your argument? You know, it's an interesting question and to try and really answer it as honestly as possible. Um, this film really started as so many charities start with really no money. There was it was it was a wing and a prayer operation all the way along. You know, I think one of the things I have been saying recently, because these are people that I reached out to, I was also, you know, could not do this full time. So I I have some regrets. I actually want to make it uncharitable, too, in which there are a whole lot less <laughs> white guys. I mean, and I think also we're talking about a, a TV series because this is a long-term thing that has to be resolved. I do think a lot of people donate because they don't feel great about their lives. They don't feel terrific. And they feel good when they give money. They feel good about that. And they keep doing it. But I don't think there's a tremendous amount of hope involved in that transaction. I think what, what the sector can deliver at a time that we need it is hope, that there's a hope we can actually change. There is hope in the film, uh, certainly, and, and examples of organizations doing things differently. And I'm thinking of people, uh, including the head of Chicago's YWCA, Dory McWhorter, who is featured prominently in the film. You, you interview her about an exchange-traded fund that donates profits back to women's empowerment, work that, that helps empower women. Tell us a bit more about Dory. Well, Dory has a really interesting mix 
of charitable giving, for-profit. She's kind of a force of nature, as most of the people in the film are. I think I think the thing is, is that Dan sort of talks about, it's not like we're trying to turn this, or Dan's trying to turn this, or Dory's trying to turn this into a charity working like business. It's just using some of the tools that they have. And some of those tools are wonderful marketing, you know, exciting marketing. Marketing is about real hope, authentic hope. And I think she does. She wants to make a billion dollar enterprise that solves these problems. And, you know, I think as the film is just getting out of the world, we're going to start to be gathering more and more examples of how this kind of thinking really does bring hope. And I would say, you know, this is one of the things I talk about a lot now is the need for nonprofit organizations to understand what capital is. They think of capital as whatever is in their petty cash. Well, if you got $17,000 in your petty cash, then your dreams are limited in scope to $17,000. Nonprofits need to start to ask, what's my dream? What do I want to achieve? And what capital do I need to make that happen rather than what little capital do I have and what little dream can I make happen um, with that? I believe they, they need to and they deserve to be able to dream every bit as big as Elon Musk is dreaming, every bit as big as uh, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg are dreaming. God knows, you know, solving for hunger and illiteracy and all of these other things is more important than our ability to post on Facebook or or on Twitter. Yet we give those entities all of the freedom to pay people billions of dollars and then someone gets criticized for being paid 700000 in a charity. We need to dream really, really big and not be embarrassed about dreaming really, really big about solving those problems because that's what we all want. Dan, Stephen, we do have to leave it there, but thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you a lot. Thank Take you. Care. You too. Dan Pallotta is an activist, philanthropist, and the subject of the 2023 documentary Uncharitable. Stephen Gyllenhaal is its director. Neil spoke with both of them in October from Topsfield, Massachusetts and Los Angeles, California. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following The World at Six. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app. Thanks for listening. I'm Megan Williams. And I'm Samira Moyedin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.